This morning's scripture will come from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Again, that's Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you'd like to follow on in, uh, along in your pew Bibles, that would be found on 1,088. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcome, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It's kind of a messy day outside, and what a blessing it is to be inside with God's family, worshiping God, and to have a seat. And we'll talk about that in just a few moments. Keep in mind that tonight our simulcast will be in the fellowship room upstairs, and that will be a, a regular thing to make it more convenient for those of you that participate in that. And we're thankful for that. And so it will continue to help us have plenty of seats on Sunday night. So come back at six o'clock tonight as we'll worship God again. What a tremendous homecoming, 125th anniversary that was celebrated last week and, and the, the week before that. Uh, last Sunday was tremendous. The several days leading up to that. And uh, we want to thank God. He blessed us richly and it's good to remember. And we were reminded of several things over the past 125 years in the way God has blessed us. If you missed out on the one o'clock program uh, of homecoming, there's a historical pamphlet that was passed out then that they are scattered throughout in the windowsills as well as in the foyer. If you want to pick one of those up, it's a very interesting read about uh, God's people here at Mount Juliet. We're hopeful that the church itself, that you were edified. To each of you that invited, that prayed, that attended, that worked, uh, a big thank you. Uh, I guess we had probably at least 300 guest here. It was really awesome to see how many came back home. Some, several traveled from other states uh, in many different cities and we're thankful. Just a couple of things as a reminder as we, we kind of come out of homecoming, uh, the t-shirts and the polo shirts are still available and they'll be in the downstairs fellowship room today after services if uh, you want those. Also, very important, the time capsule that will be uh, preserved for 15 years. Uh, the deadline will be roughly next Sunday. 
And so if you haven't written a letter yet to the congregation and include in that letter maybe some personal things to family or maybe a lot of folks write two different letters and maybe you want to write one and address it to an individual or to families, but it'll open up in 2031. We first buried a time capsule in 2001 and it was to be opened 40 years later at the 150th anniversary. And I, I think I'm safe to say hundreds of letters came in. And people were real fired up about it, and it was really exciting. And it's buried right out here in the front yard. It wasn't long after that, a lot of people said, you know, I'm not going to be alive to see that open. And I kind of would like to see a time capsule open. And so five years later, when we had a smaller homecoming, we said, all right, to appease the request, we'll bury a 15-year time capsule and try to hang on. And uh, that time capsule will be open five years from now. We won't have a huge homecoming, more than likely, like we did this past, but we'll have, we'll have some kind of afternoon where uh, everybody will gather and letters will be read and those that were made out to, to personal uh, individuals will be handed out to them. And uh, so five years from now, a 15-year capsule will open up and it'll be really exciting. Well, 10 years after that, the same thing will happen with what you're preserving right now. And so I just want to paint in your vision, the idea that, you know, if the Lord allows me to preach here 15 years from now, I know I'll be pushing retirement by then, but, but if the Lord allows me, you know, I'm going to be standing up or somebody's going to be saying, Hey, come back this afternoon. We're having a, we're having a, a, an opening of the time capsule and letters are going to be read and passed out and, and show up at four o'clock. More than likely, you're going to have some family that's really excited to see what you said to them. And they're going to hear what other people said to their families and stuff. And if you want to be like the only kid at Christmas that doesn't get a gift, that's, I'm just trying to paint a reality. That's what it's going to be like in 15 years. So I want to encourage you kids, you really ought to be writing a note to your parents. And parents, you really ought to be writing some notes to your kids and to your family. And family, you ought to be writing a note to your church family because it's going to be pretty exciting 15 years from now uh, when we see the love that was shared and the vision that was shared. And when we reveal, hey, this is what I've been praying for you for the next 15 years. This is what I hope over the next 15 years. So I want to encourage you. Um, it's a good exercise. It's not just a time capsule. It's a good exercise. What do you want? What's your prayer for the Mount Juliet congregation 15 years from now? Put that on paper and, and be sure and get that in. You can include photographs, other things of reasonable size, uh, feel free to do so. Also, as we think about the future, during the homecoming program at one o'clock last Sunday, the elders shared vision of things that they hoped that would become as a congregation. And the last part of that vision was sharing the actual tool, if you will, of a bigger facility. You know, in essence, that's all a facility is. It's not about the brick and mortar. It's about a tool a place where people can gather to serve and to worship God. And we're thankful that a little over 20 years ago, a lot of sacrifice and planning was made so that you have a seat this morning. You wouldn't have a seat this morning if we were still in the same facility. It's just a fact. Everybody wouldn't fit. Somebody would have been told, not verbally, but by actions, you would have been told several years ago when you first visited here, you're not welcome. This is only for us. We don't allow others to come in. We're more like a social club. The reason you have a place to sit this morning, the reason you have the opportunity to come and worship with this family 
It's because 20 years ago, a lot of people sacrificed and a lot of people planned. Now the question is, what about for other souls that haven't yet been reached or will move into this community over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Will they have a seat? Well, the feasibility study has been done and it was presented and this is only a concept from the architect at this time. The elders have a lot of uh, decisions to make. I encourage you to be praying for them. They also, in the future, will be having some opportunities for you to sit down in small meetings and just ask questions. And they can give you even more details, of course, than what was given last Sunday. So be mindful of all this, be prayerful of all this, and be thinking what you can do uh, to be a part of the future of the work here in the Lord's place. Because after all, what we've been studying all year is about the marvels of God. And the church is one of the most marvelous creations that God has ever created. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, purchased by the blood of Christ, to carry out the work of Christ, even right now, today. The church is one of the most marvelous creations God has ever made. I hope you're a part of her. I hope you love her. I hope you're willing to sacrifice all for her because Jesus loves her. And he did sacrifice all so that you and I can be a part of her. With that in mind, I want to speak to you real estate agents for just a few moments. What's the most, one of the most important rules? Let's just go ahead, as always said, what's the three most important rules of real estate? Location, location, location. Wouldn't it be amazing to be able to have an office or to set up a business at such prominent locations that everybody in the entire city, state, nation, all know the address? Wouldn't it be amazing to say, sure, my office is in the One World Trade Center. You probably couldn't say that to hardly anybody in America without them saying, I, I know where that is. A lot of America would say, I've been there. Or imagine saying, the Empire State Building. That's where my business is. Or imagine being able to say, the Chrysler Building. Or maybe not quite as known, but yet still known, what about the Flatiron Building where Fifth Avenue and Broadway come together in New York City? I want to paint a picture of you for location for just a moment. I want you to think about a passage where the entire chapter is about the glory of Jesus. Beautiful, descriptive terms about the glory of Jesus. And then you skip down a little bit and you pick up with the, a passage that's two chapters long about the grandeur of heaven. For two chapters, we see the throne room of God. For two chapters, we see how everyone is in a, a worshipful mode. They are in awe. They are pouring out their heart because they're in the throne room of God. Now, I want to ask you, what deserves such prime location 
as the space of scripture between the glory of Jesus and the grandeur of heaven. Seven letters that Jesus wrote to the church. In your Bible that you're holding, the New Testament's made up of 27 books and 21 of them are letters. That's not all the letters because there are seven individual letters in Revelation, the second and third chapter. They're letters that Jesus Christ himself wrote to individual congregations. And what's amazing about these letters that really goes right along with Revelation is the consistency of them. Seven being a perfect number. And these letters, for the most part, are made up of seven elements. Salutation. And right after that, each one begins with a brief description of Jesus, but very different kinds of descriptions maybe than what you might first think in other passages. And then he commends those congregations and then he offers condemnation for five of those congregations and warnings of how they need to correct that and then exhortation that they can do it, they can overcome and then promises about what every one of those congregations will receive eternally if they overcome. Now, several years ago, Harold Hazlip preached in 1973, preached some very brief sermons through Revelation. Many of you will remember Thomas Rice. Years ago, he gave me an oversized pamphlet. It was like a little booklet of those sermons printed in 1973, published and, and sold or given away. I was reading through that in preparation for this lesson. And there was one paragraph where what he said sparked an idea for this series of lessons that will continue next Sunday and then probably Sunday nights in the next month to come. He said of these seven churches, even though there are much said about them, for each one, there is a very distinctive message that can be picked out. And he placed the emphasis on one distinct message that could be picked out. And he said, if we took those seven messages and we brought them out and we put them in order, if you will, we put them in a single thought, you could say that's what every congregation should learn. Here on this next slide, we see what we can learn if we were going to pick out one distinct note from each of these congregations. From Ephesus, we learn the importance of love. From Smyrna, we learn the importance to suffer and be faithful. From Pergamos or Pergamum, we learn the importance of truth. Thyatira, holiness. Sardis, genuineness. Philadelphia, evangelism. Laodicea, dedication. Don't be lukewarm. Be on fire. Be dedicated for the Lord. And so when we back up, when we look at that with a, a, a broader scope, we see that every church ought to be practicing these seven elements, these notes, these descriptive notes. And so over the next few weeks, 
Let's study each one of these. And you notice the scripture reading that's already been capably read this morning. There's enough in that paragraph that you really have to rush. We could spend two or three weeks easily, not even trying to go slow. We could spend three weeks on just the paragraph that was read this morning. But we're not going to do that. We're going to try to give a, a flyover of this paragraph and then right at the end of this lesson, we're going to go back and we're going to summarize. See how the emphasis was on love and then try to apply that to us as a congregation. Do we look like the church of Ephesus? If so, the Lord would say, you need to change something. Something is wrong with the way you love. So we begin. Will you look with me in Revelation? We're going to study the seven churches of Asia. You see on this map here that they are, of course, grouped geographically. Those are the churches we're going to be studying about. When you go to Revelation, the second chapter in verse one, you see to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now, I don't have a slide for what I'm about to say, but if you have your Bible open, you might say, well, who are the angels? Who are these messengers that Jesus is writing to that they in turn are supposed to take this message to their local congregation? In other words, whoever this angel was was supposed to take the message to Ephesus. Well, when you back up to the first chapter in verse 20, we see a description. I'm going to read it here. It says, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. And now he describes it. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. So in this next two chapters, when we read about a lampstand, he's told us already I'm talking about my church in that particular congregation. And when he says, when I'm talking to you about the, one of the seven stars, I'm telling you I have sent a messenger to you. Now, I know in English, that's a little bit confusing. In Greek, the word angel simply means messenger. And so then we have to look at the context of the passage to say, is this messenger of a heavenly host angel or was this messenger a human being that was chosen to be a messenger that in Greek is perfectly appropriate to say they're an angel? Like, try this sometime this week and see if it works for you. Like, you could be like at the grocery store and maybe see me walking by, and you could say to, to somebody in the grocery store, say, look, that, that's an angel right there. I thought that was a good idea. But <laughs> a messenger in Greek is simply an angel. And so Jesus chose seven human beings that were a part, most likely already a part of these particular congregations. And you can imagine, perhaps it was on a Sunday, the church was gathering. We know that the church in Ephesus had strong elders. Perhaps one of the elders was chosen. Perhaps as one of their ministers. We know at one time, Timothy was a great minister in Ephesus. But can you imagine a man walking in one Sunday morning and saying, church, I've got something we, we really need to read this morning. What do you have? I've got a letter. Who's it from? I've got a letter from Jesus Christ. No way. Yeah, really. Here, let's, let's read this letter that is written specifically to our congregation this morning. Can you imagine that? 
That's what happened. And in this, there's a lot of application for every congregation of the Lord's church that would ever exist. And so let's go back now to verse one again, when he says to the angel, he's talking about a messenger that's gonna stand up in Ephesus, the Ephesians congregation, and, and he's going to deliver this message to them. And he's gonna say these things, says he, and notice now this is a description of Jesus. And, and if you're reading on the screen, you know that I put in those yellow words. That's, I'm, I'm just trying to help us with the different elements of the passage, okay? So here's a description of Jesus in the text. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand. See, he's controlling the message. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We could ask the question, who is Jesus? But even here, we could ask the question, where is Jesus? Isn't it an awesome thought that Jesus is right in the middle of his congregations of his people? He is in the midst of the lampstands. So in a few minutes, when he gives an evaluation of things that he sees that's really good, a commendation, and then when he gives a condemnation, the reason he knows that is because he's in the midst of his church. Who knows the Mount Juliet congregation of the Lord's church better than anybody? Well, Jesus. Who is here and among us every time we gather and even when we depart? Jesus. He is in the midst of us. He knows us well. That's why the very next lines begin. Look at verse 2. The commendation of each of these congregations begins by saying, I know, that's, that's full knowledge. I know your works. And the word works there is, is a word for deeds that can go either positive or negative. So you have to read the following words to say, okay, is he gonna say, I know your deeds and you guys are really messing up? Or is he gonna say, I know your deeds and you're really doing well? Well, for the first few lines here, he's gonna say, I know your works. And here's some good things I see. I know your labor. And the word labor is from the idea of work that is toilsome. You know, like when you, you, you talk about somebody toiling, and I know we don't talk like that a lot today, but it's the idea of, of someone just exhausting their self and labor. That's the word here for labor. He says, I know your labor. I know your patience. That's the idea of perseverance. I know you work really, really hard. And I know that you don't allow exhaustion to stop you. You just keep working. I want to encourage you to never look at a ministry, an opportunity to serve and evaluate whether or not you're going to do it based upon the last time I did it, it really exhausted me. Are you listening? Good is good and righteous is righteous. And we ought to be willing to give our all, even to exhaustion, for the work of God. It really concerns me when I hear, especially leaders, evaluate a good work and say something like this. I tell you what, that was one of the best things we did, but I tell you, I'm so tired, I don't know if I want us to do that again. That's some pretty concerning language. Now, can we find a more efficient way? Sure. If that can be found, great. But listen, we should never stop doing something because it wears us out. 
Instead, we ought to be able to join in with the Ephesians and say, you know what? We labor. And we labor hard enough that we go to bed exhausted a lot of nights. But you know what? We persevere. We have patience. We get up and we do it again. And so when Jesus says, I want to write a letter to you and Jesus is writing the letter, that's what he says. I know your works. I know how you exhaust yourself and I know how you won't let exhaustion stop you from serving me. And so, great. That's wonderful. And notice, not only that, he knows their dedication to truth. Look at the rest of that verse. And that you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and not and have found them liars. Second Corinthians, the 12th chapter, if you're making notes and want to study something further this week, point of interest. Second Corinthians, the 12th chapter in verse 11 and 12, Paul was continually throughout his interaction with the people of Corinth, he was continually having to prove to them that he wasn't a false apostle. There were false apostles. There were individuals that would come into towns and they would say that they're apostle from God just so people would believe that the, what they taught was truth when the reality is what they taught was error. And so they would say they were an apostle so people would believe their false teachings. Others probably would say that they were an apostle so people would give them money. They probably were, were simply saying we're an apostle from God and, and there's another great work, you know, like when Paul collected money to help uh, the, the church in Jerusalem during the famine. You can imagine false apostles watching that and saying, wow, we could come in and we could say we're apostle and we can get all this money. And so scattered throughout the writings of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul is making strong plea to them to say, I am not a false apostle like you continually accuse me of being. And one of the things that he does to prove this, at the end of verse 11 he says, or in verse 12 he says, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished. Now think about that. He said, there are signs. There are ways you can know whether or not someone is an apostle. How? They were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders. That's our word for marvel. Signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And now he's writing to the church at Ephesus. And if you'll remember back in Acts, the 19th chapter in verse 11, God gave Paul the ability to do such mighty miracles there that it's implied there, said there, that God gave him a little extra. They literally could take a handkerchief from Paul or an apron and they could take that over and travel a distance to someone who was sick and that person would be healed just because it had come from Paul. Look, those were some of the signs, that perseverance in righteousness and those mighty signs that no one could do unless they were of God. Now let's go back in our minds here to this passage. What is he saying to the church of Ephesus? You didn't just believe anybody that passed through Ephesus and said, hey, I've got a message from God for you. They said, we're gonna test you. We'll believe it's from God when it's proven that it is from God. And if it can't be proven it's from God, we will not follow it. What a commendation. We work to exhaustion and we won't stop. We follow truth and we will not be easily fooled into believing error. What a commendation. So you say, wow, everything must be good there. Think about it. Are you with me? 
All their works seem good. All their truth, all their doctrine seems good. Could anything be wrong with a church that's doing the right things to exhaustion? And they're doing it all in truth. And this is one of the most sobering letters of these seven letters. Because notice as we continue reading in verse four. Nevertheless, so he's saying, wait, there's more. I have this against you. Jesus says, I am against you on this. Jesus, what are you against Ephesus on? That you have left your first love. A lot of debate about what is the first love. Have they left their love for God? Or have they left their love for fellow man? Have they left their love for Christ's church? What is the first love? You know how, like, if you walked right up to a tree and, and you just, like, put your face within a few inches of a leaf, what would you see? All right, now imagine you back up several hundred feet and you look at kind of a landscape picture of a field with a forest behind it. Now what do you see? I believe that we make a mistake when we go up to this passage of love and we think that it's got to be one specific thing because if we really look at the entire New Testament teaching on love, we learn in 1 John, the fourth chapter, that he loved us first in verse 19. And then in verse 20 and 21, and I'm just going to read that quickly in 1 John 4 and 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So now let's back up and instead of just seeing, are we talking about the love of God? Are we talking about this leaf, the love for the church? Are we talking about this leaf, the love for the world? What leaf are we talking about? Let's back up for a minute and think about this. What is love? None of us really knows what love is unless we first, verse 19, received it from God. It's a free gift. It's offered to everyone. Have you received the love of Christ? When we receive the love of Christ, then we have something to give. You can't give something you do not have. And so now, as we receive love from God, what do we learn? Through his love and teachings, truth, we learn how to love God back. First greatest commandment. We also learn through loving God how to love others. We learn how to love his church. We learn how to love the world. We even learn how to love our enemies. So now I just ask you a simple question. Why would we want to break down to one detail, a concept that really is an entire landscape of beauty and it is essential? No one can say, oh, I've got my love for God right, but I don't have my love for fellow man right. You can't do that according to 1 John 4, 9 and 10. If you have your love for God right, you also have your love for fellow man. If there's somebody sitting in this auditorium right now and you can look over at a brother and you can say, I despise him. I do not love him. You don't love God. I'm not guessing that. I'm telling you that's what your father in heaven said. 
You can't divide love up and say, oh, I, I love God and I love most of the people in this church and I love some people out in my community, but there's some people in the church I hate and there's some people in the community I hate. I have some coworkers I hate. Okay, let me tell you something. You don't love God. You think you do, but you don't. So what about this church now in Ephesus? What have they left? They've left their first love. We don't have the details of how that was played out. But apparently, they were able to do ministry and it not be fueled from love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 2, and 3? You can do all of those things without love and it's what? It's worth nothing. Life minus love is worth nothing. And so even though their sermons were right, their preaching was right, their classes was right, if you went up and asked them doctrinal questions, it was all right, their ministries were right, do you think they took care of the widows? I would imagine they did the way he commanded them for, or do you think they took care of orphans? I imagine they did. Do you see the way he commended them? Do you think they were involved in evangelism? I imagine they did. Do you see the way he commended their work? But what is all of that without love? The Lord says, I'll tell you what it is, it's not acceptable. You know, sometime when you're in the middle of a family, you, it's kind of hard to get a pulse on a family because you might have a skewed vision. But when I hear other people talk about the Mount Juliet congregation, I regularly hear how much work and ministry is done by Christians there. I regularly hear how committed the congregation is to the truth of God's word. And I ask you this morning, is that enough? I do hear sometime, that's a loving group of people. But I just want to remind you this morning that those aren't optional. It's not a, hey, which one you want to work on this week? We must love God with all of our being and we must love our neighbor as ourself. We must love and make sure that as we set out this week to do ministry, that the motive and then what it's clothed in is love. We must realize that when, when we go in, into classes or into conversations or discussion and, and doctrine comes up, we must speak truth. But remember what he said to these same people in Ephesians 4 and 15. Remember what he said to these same people? Speak the truth in love that you may grow into all things in Christ Jesus. We must be people of love, or the Lord would say, and we're gonna pick up the pace now, more of an overview and then complete this, but will you stay with me for just a moment? What do you do when it's wrong? Look at verse five, we have three R's, even though there's really only two there, but you'll be, you'll be with me in a minute. Look at verse five. He tells them, remember therefore from where you've fallen. Number two, repent, and number three, return. Do the works, do the first works. He says, remember, don't you remember how, how much you loved me when you were converted? Remember Acts 19? They brought all their books of sorcery. You know how valuable books were? They could have sold them for a lot of money, but they loved God so much, they piled them up in a pile and they burned them and it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. 
Just a few years before that, Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces and this was worth 50,000 pieces. Why would you burn something of that value? And their answer would have probably been, we love Jesus. They built a strong, thriving congregation in the shadow of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Temple of Diana was a world religion. It was a financial resource that was booming. And they built the light of Christianity. They're the light stand. They held up that light of Christianity so strong that Demetrius was afraid that they were going to continue to hurt his business. Remember, remember how much you used to love me. Do you remember a time in your life where you were really on fire because you loved the Lord and you loved him more? If so, we need to repent. We need to turn and return. Let's go back to those first works. David Roper, who wrote the Truth For Today commentary said, these Christians may have had a strong right arm of service and a strong left arm of discipline, but they had heart trouble. And so the warning was in the following verses, or else I'll come to you and quickly remove your lampstand. So it's repent or I'll remove it. Verse six, they still hated the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. God did too. So the exhortation in verse seven is, do you have an ear to hear? When somebody tells you something that needs to be corrected in your life, are you arrogant enough you can't hear it? Are you apathetic enough you don't care to hear it? Or do you have an ear to hear? It's amazing how all seven of these churches, Jesus spoke very bluntly, but then closing his letter, he says, now I just wonder if you have the ear to hear it. You know, sometimes we hear something, but we don't listen. We hear it, but we don't do anything about it. And so that's his plea. What, do, what are we going to do about this? And then he says the promise to them, to him who overcomes. And that Greek word there is the verb is, is what we get Nike from. It's victorious. And so he who is victorious, he says, I will give to eat from the tree of life. What a gift, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What a gift. Eat of the tree of life. We can live forever. That was back in the garden of Eden. But then once man sinned, cherubs protected it so that it could not be taken from again. But now we go to the very last chapter of Revelation. We see this tree over a crystal stream of water that the source of it is from the throne room of God. And we see that this tree has fruits for every season, 12 months of fruit. We see that its leaves are for the healing. We see that this tree is an awesome source of beauty and symbolism to tell us we can live forever with God. But if we don't love, we won't live and he'll remove the lampstand. So what I learned today I learned that Jesus stands in the midst of the church. Number two, I learned he evaluates our works, our devotion to truth, and our love. Number three, doing the right things without the right motive of love isn't acceptable to Jesus. So number four, I hope we've learned this. This week I'll evaluate. I wanna encourage you to listen to the letter from Jesus this morning and evaluate your life. When you go to work tomorrow, 
Are your works and things you say of truth going to come from love? Be clothed in love, interwoven with love. What about us as a congregation? As leaders, elders, deacons, Bible class teachers, minister staff, we all really need to think about the ministries that we lead, the truth that is presented, but it's not what it should be if it's not in love. And let's make sure that if Jesus were looking down upon us as a congregation, he would know that we love him. Can we help you this morning? One of the most precious gifts we have is to be a part of the Lord's family, the Lord's church. And if you're not where you need to be in that family relationship with the Lord, we'd love to, to be of an encouragement to you this morning. We're about to sing a song that is meant to be encouraging. It's, it's a song to encourage you to do something if in fact you need to. If you've never become a part of the Lord's church, you're ready to be baptized this morning for the remission of your sins. Maybe you have been in the past and you are ready to be restored. Things have separated you and you want to come back home and work and live truth and love. If we can help you anyway, come as we stand as we sing.